0: Good evening. And thank you for joining in on Flames to Torches, hosted by Shirley Jen Wright. This is my first podcast. And I am honored to have my very first guest, Dr. Amon Perry. Perry uh, is a graduate of Alabama State University and HBCU in Montgomery, Alabama. He has a bachelor's of social work. After graduation, he attended the University of Alabama in Tuscaloosa where he got his master's and a doctorate in social uh, work, master's in social work. He was immediately hired in 2008 by the University of Louisville in Kentucky where he has been a professor on their staff ever since. He is married and he does have a family. He is my nephew, so I'm very proud of him and is so pleased to have him as my first guest. So welcome Ahmad.
1: Thank you for having me. How are you today?
0: I am just doing great. And thank you also to uh, those who are listening in. I hope to hear from you and this will not be the last time that we will be talking on a subject of this nature. So um, Ahmad wrote a book called Black Love Matters. So what I would like to know if you could tell uh, our audience, why did you choose that title? And what was the inspiration around you writing about black love?
1: Sure. So um, I think the uh, the I'll, I'll take the the second question first in terms of what was the inspiration for the book, and then I get into the the specific title. Um, so I've I've always been curious by nature. I think in many ways that's the reason why I do what I do for a um, the the job that I have, as, a, as it puts me in a position to investigate topics that are of interest to me. Um, doing studies conducting experiments and then sharing the results like we're doing today share the results with as many different people who are, as, are interested in listening um i like to consider myself a community engaged researcher so what that means is rather than limiting myself to publishing the results of my studies in academic journals um, i like to take the conversations beyond the walls of the university and engage what i in, in these types of discussions and conversations impact and influence on the community and the experiences of the people in the community. So uh, one of the things that I picked up on not long after I graduated was uh, people were really, really talking a lot about relationships and marriage and love. And the thing that really sort of crystallized it for me was when Steve Harvey wrote a book called Like a At the time, it seemed like everywhere I went, people were going crazy over the book, right? Um, In the barbershops, they were talking about the book and about the book. When I went home to visit friends and family, they were talking about the book. People were reading this thing all over the place. And so I decided to pick it up just to see what all of the buzz was about. Uh, I, I got into it. And what was interesting was that it seemed as though, Uh, People were receiving the book as if it were a how-to guide, um, as if it were sort of and all types of database decision making. But when I read it, it was Steve Harvey to me, and but that was not the way that people were receiving circles anyway. So um, that combined with which is what I feel like there's a preoccupation with celebrity culture to sort of dig more into the research uh, around black marriage and black relationships. And what I found then was that even research, there was a tendency to lean more towards what we call deficit frame search, which had to do with examining or investigating topics, but from a negative sort of a perspective. So in other words, people were curious to know what was going on with low-income Black men, and why was it that low-income Black men weren't getting married, or why were people having children in non-relationships, and what types of challenges did that bring about, and what were some of the barriers that they were facing? But everything was, again, was either negative or deficit-framed. And when it came to research on Black men specifically, what people were looking to do, it seemed like to me, was they wanted to implicate them in discussions about what was um challenging or problematic about their communities and and, and their families. And so they didn't seem to be much as it relates to how it is that black men could be uh strengths or assets to their communities. And um given that not much of this research actually took into consideration the thoughts and perspectives of actual black men. It was just a lot of people talking about about black men, but not many people talking to black men. I decided to try to balance that out by having discussions and conversations with uh, regular everyday folk. Right. Uh, people not much different than you and me who were just living their lives to see. What do they think about relationships? What do they think about marriage? And So the subtitle of the book is Authentic Men's Voices on Marriage and Romantic Relationships. And I emphasize the word authentic, right? So again, so as to draw a parallel to the fact that what we're trying to do here is just engage regular everyday folk in discussion and conversation. Um, In terms of Black Love Matters, obviously that um, is sort of uh, an homage to a larger sort of a movement around Black Lives Matter and the idea that we're in a time and a place where uh, we're just looking to assert our humanity, right, Um, and and say to the world, we are whole people, we are real people, Uh, we are not subhuman the way that the society tends to treat us, we are not uh, less than, we are not problems, we are not uh, looking to do damage or cause trouble. We're just regular people who want the same things out of our country, out of our community, out of our families, as everybody else wants, right? And So um, I I thought that it was a way to sort of not only pay homage to the larger movement, but also to speak specifically about the idea that black men want love and to be loved just like everyone else.
0: So, how did you find your subject for the research?
1: Yeah, so that's a good question. So when it came time for us to start recruiting for the the study. Um, we were interested in, again, because I mentioned so much of the research is, is deficit frame, we were interested in recruiting a more diverse group of black men. right? So we wanted men who were across the age spectrum, who were across the socioeconomic spectrum, who Uh, had differences uh, of thoughts and opinion around sort of gender identity. And so we recruited men out of all types of places. We recruited men out of social service agencies. We recruited men out of uh, institutions of higher education. We recruited men out of uh, community centers. We recruited men out of philanthropic organizations, uh, barbershops, things of that nature. So anywhere where we felt like we had reason to believe that Black men would would congregate and would populate, we showed up there with information about the study, uh, attempted to recruit them into a, a survey study that um, solicited their thoughts and opinions about uh, marriage, romantic relationships, and the perspectives and experiences that drove whatever the attitudes were. And so from there, uh, we had a subset of men who identified themselves as being interested and willing to sit out for longer, uh, more in-depth individual interviews. And that's what the book is based on, is based on the individual interviews where we had a group of black men that we followed over the course of a full four years uh, with multiple interviews, tracing the ups and downs, the ebbs and flows in their relationships to be able to determine from them, from their own perspectives, firsthand accounts of what was happening in their relationships and what the changes were and what were the circumstances and experiences that led to those changes.
0: Oh, okay. So did you, when you were talking to them, were there anything that stood out about some of their uh, stories?
1: Yeah, there were, there were a number of things. And so uh, I should mention to you, the again, the interviews were, were in-depth interviews. Um, we ended up with well over man, 150, close to 175 hours worth of interviews. Yeah, and they all had to be transcribed. And so we're talking hundreds and hundreds of pages of transcripts. And so in response to the question, what were the things that stood out? What we did was the major themes that jumped out in those transcripts, those those are the things that became chapters in the the book, right? And so we have a chapter on uh, the role that sex and intimacy plays in relationships. So that was a major theme that came out. Uh, We have a chapter that deals with uh, what we call trials, tribulations, and traumas, Mm -hmm. Uh, the the negative experiences that guys had, whether it be with physical abuse, sexual abuse, psychological challenges, um, and what they termed as relationship, early negative relationship experiences or relationship traumas that came out. So we have a chapter there. Uh, we have a chapter that, again, traces the guys' uh, relationship trajectories, the changes and the stability in their relationships and what they accounted for, or attributed that either change or stability to that became a chapter. We also have a, what I feel like is a really interesting chapter on uh, gender identity, and uh, it situates or centers around guys responding to the question of whether or not they felt like being in a romantic relationship. Um, influenced impacted their sense of masculinity? So in other words, did they feel like uh, being in a relationship or being married uh, influenced their thoughts around what it means to be a man? And then we wrap up with a chapter on uh, the major findings of the book, but we also uh, give the guys thoughts and perspectives on the future of relationships and what, if any, advice they would give to other people who were interested in learning more about this topic from the hearts and minds directly from black men so those were the major themes that came out and those are the things that we wanted to highlight in the book and and so to give credence to those things we decided to make each of those uh major themes a chapter in the book
0: okay what were some of their thoughts on being in a relationship where the woman income was much higher Mm. than the males
1: sure so um I mean, obviously, finances are a major thing in relationships, um, and that's in a relationship, and that was certainly the case with with the guys that we talked with. And as I mentioned, we tried to recruit a diverse sample, so we had guys who ranged in income from being unemployed at the time to guys who were executives in corporations and earned well over. I think the highest reported income we had was $175,000. So we had people who were well-to-do and we had people who had no stream of income or no means of supporting themselves and everywhere in between. And so we had a range of different responses about uh, the way in which finances influenced and impacted relationships. And so just to give you a sampling of some of the uh, diversity of thought there, we got guys who talked about the idea that um, in their relationships, finances and the way in which people viewed finances became a sore spot or a point of contention. We had one gentleman who uh, over the course of the study ended up separating from his wife. And he talked to us about how finances and, and what he called selfishness was at the heart of that. Right. So in other words, This was a man who when he got married, he was a little bit older than uh, most people who who were married. He was late 30s, maybe even early 40s. And so by the time he got married, he had already had children with another partner and his wife also had children from a previous relationship. So so when they got married, these were two people who had uh, gotten accustomed to being adults and living on their own, raising their children um, in their own households. And so when they got married, they had to figure out how was it they were going to come together and combine, whether it be, um, all of their resources from income and finances to assets, things like the house and where were they going to live and you have a house and I have a house, but we're going to live together. So what are we going to do with the extra house? Did we just get a, a new different house or would it be our house and so on and so forth? Well, they, what they decided is, um, Apparently, they were going to live in the home that was previously owned by the, the wife um, and the guy that I interviewed, he talked about how not only issues related to the house, but also cars and decisions around finances became a, a point of contention when, uh, according to the man that I interviewed, uh, the wife used the word I and me more often than he would have liked. Right, talking about the things that she had accomplished, talking about the things that she had accumulated, talked about the things that she had purchased, uh, rather than talking about what they as a team, as a collective had done, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: right? Um, And that became a problem for them. And he talked about how as a part of their separation, one of the things they had to do was just sort of strip their whole relationship down and basically start over again because um, when when he felt like she wasn't as much of a team player as he would have liked, what he decided to do was to sort of be a little bit more withdrawn and he withheld from her. And so what ended up happening was their relationship became a competition rather than something that was cooperative. And it was sort of the impetus for all of that was the way in which uh, he felt like she was being selfish with the way that she discussed and described their relationship, talking about and focusing on I versus us, or so we and so on and so forth. So there were situations like that. There were other situations where we had a younger gentleman who at the time when I met him, he, he was a recent college graduate, uh, was engaged to be married. Uh, he was excited about his uh, soon to be wife and everything that was on the horizon for them. But he also had some apprehension and some reluctance because uh, he felt like he did not have the best role models for marriage. He talked about the fact that his mother had been married and divorced three times and he was concerned about whether or not whatever it was he needed to see in terms of a stable relationship and marriage, he had seen enough of that to be able to model it and put that into uh, play in, in the practice in his own relationship. But and he also talked about needing constant reassurance from his fiance at the time that, everything was going okay, because he just had this sort of eerie feeling that something was sort of lurking like right around the corner and it would negatively impact his relationship. And so he talked about how in one of the later interviews uh, toward the end of the project, how by the time we sat out for the last time, he had graduated from school and he had started his own business and the business had started to take off. So he was doing much uh, better than he was when we first started. And he talked about how over time, the better better financial position that he and his wife were in, the easier it was for them to come together as a couple because they were not distracted by being concerned about whether or not they were going to be able to pay the mortgage, whether or not they were going to be able to make payroll with the business, whether or not they want to be able to take a vacation, things of this nature. So uh, money became a distraction for, for them early on in their relationship. But as they began to do a little bit better, that became less of an issue and it was just one less thing that they had to worry about. And so in many ways it liberated them or freed them up to be able to focus and concentrate on getting to know each other, to learn and grow from one another and to grow in that relationship. And so he talked about how finances played a major role in his relationship from a positive standpoint, because Once they got to a point where they no longer had to concern themselves about money, then they could focus and concentrate on growing, building, and evolving in their relationship. So there were all types of ways in which money and finances impacted guys' relationships. And those are just a couple of the sort of extremes on on either side. But there was also just regular discussion anywhere in between there as well.
0: Okay. So how do you think uh, their influences when they were growing up and now they've uh, how do you think those influences and them being an adult and a parent now would influence their children?
1: Mm. Yeah, so that's a really good question as well. And so the, there were a number of ways that both the family of origin influenced and impacted the guys' relationships. Uh, one of the questions we asked all of the guys was, tell us a little bit about your background and specifically tell us about whether or not your parents are married and what their relationship looked like. And it was interesting that in many cases, not all, but in many cases, the men's relationship status, whether they were married or divorced or whatever the case may be, basically mirrored that of their own parents, right? Um, and so it speaks to this sort of notion of modeling, right? in um, the, the young man that I was telling you about who was apprehensive about uh, getting there because he was concerned about whether or not his relationship was gonna work out because he had seen so much um, from a divorce standpoint with his own mother, he talked about one of the things that he really, really loved wife was that she came from a family where her Come from a family where she was accustomed. Looked like, and so for him, what that signal was. Run just because things get tough. Because again, that was an area that was of concern for him. Uh, And so we saw situations like that. We also saw situations where. Um, when men and women got either divorced or separated, um, the relationship with in-laws became a point of contention. And in other cases, the relationship back together where you had a mother-in-law working together with her son-in-law to sort of convince a wife that she needed to work out a relationship with her husband when she may have otherwise been reluctant to do so. So, so again, so any number of situations, scenarios where the family of origin played a major role. Um, the other thing from a family standpoint was the men talked a lot about how it was that uh, they themselves were interested in having a solid relationship because they themselves either knew the benefits of that, they themselves were children, right? We had a, a, a gentleman who talked to us about the fact that from his perspective, Uh, in order to be a stable and recognized citizen in the community, that that necessarily needed to be accompanied by marriage, right? And he talked about how the way that he was raising his children was that uh, the best and most optimal way to present oneself in the community was to be married. And he talked about the reason why he felt that way was because when he described his own childhood, he described it as comfortable, and he attributed much of that comfort to the fact that his mother and father were married, and there were two incomes, and uh, he know he never had to worry about uh, whether or not he was uh, whether or not he was going to have his own room, whether or not he was going to be able to eat every day. And he talked about that was a bit different from some of the other people in his neighborhood who experienced uh, quite a bit of challenge in that area from the standpoint of whether or not their mothers and fathers were married or had a stable relationship. And he always talked about how comfortable and how solid and how secure he felt, knowing that both his mother and father were always there and the bond that they had around marriage. And he talked about how it was important for him to create and leave that sort of a legacy. He talked about it as almost as if it were an inheritance of sorts, right? That he was going to leave for his children just mm-hmm. to show them what it meant to be, you know, stable relationship, a marital relationship and um give them a model for what that looks like and so we have men talking to us about those types of things uh the the issue of fatherhood uh, came up a lot in, in in the discussion from the standpoint that again these were men that we were talking to and and obviously in most situations when men and women do not live together or don't co-reside uh, what that oftentimes means apart So these guys were really, really cognizant of the fact that if I'm not in a married relationship or I don't live in the same house with my uh, children's mother or my girlfriend or my wife, then what that means for me is that I'm likely going to spend large amounts of time away from my children. And people were able to cite some of the sort of social science data on what children and some of the negative outcomes they have when they live in or reside in or grow up in. Sort of single parent homes. And so that was something on the front of you. the extent to which they were going to play an active role in their own children's lives was something that was really, really important to a lot of the men that we talked about. And for many of them, they sort of connected or tangled or twisted or associated their relationships as uh, husbands, boyfriends, and partners with that of their roles as fathers, like interconnected for a lot of the men. So So issues with the family play a large role in the men's attitude and perspective on marriage and relationships for all of the reasons that I mentioned, whether it be family of origin, whether it be the influence that their own sort of had or the influence that they would, or the role that they would like to play in their own children's lives. I think those are some of the major ways that family played a role in the men's thoughts and attitudes around marriage and relationships.
0: In preparing for tonight and talking to some of my friends about the fact that you were going to be talking about your book, uh, Black Love Matters. Some of the ladies mentioned that their education was higher uh, than their mate. Mm -hmm. And that has also caused some issues in their relationship, not from initially, uh, but as the relationship progressed, it caused issues. Or the, what's your take on that? Or was there any discussion around education?
1: Yeah, so that, that's, uh, that, is, that is an issue. Um, and I think unfortunately that will only become even more of an issue as time goes on. And so if I can sort of step away from the book and I'll come back to it. Um, I mean, obviously my, my, my job is as a college professor and so not only both from an anecdotal standpoint, just in terms of what it is I see in terms of people coming into the classroom, but even um, I know that there is a uh, large amounts of data to support this, right, nationwide, that um, women are more likely to go to college and graduate in, in a contemporary context. And that's even more so the case when we're talking about black men versus black women. So in other words, what we're seeing is, we're seeing this trend where it's more like that black women will go to college and graduate from college than black men. We're also seeing, for the last maybe 30 40 years, a decrease in what we would call goods producing and manufacturing work. So in other words, in days gone by, um, in the 40s, 50s and 60s, when Uh, Men didn't have a lot of formal education. They could usually find a job in a manufacturing plant, a factory of some sort, and those jobs paid a wage that was sufficient to be able to provide for a family. Unfortunately, what we're seeing is that over the last 30 to 40 years that that work is disappearing and is largely being outsourced to foreign countries. And so if you take a look at the trend data for manufacturing work, and you sort of superimpose that onto a graph or a chart with data around marriage rates, you'll see that they both go in this direction at almost the same rate, right? So in other words, what we're seeing is that as men, particularly low and semi-skilled men, as they have fewer and fewer opportunities to earn a wage sufficient to provide for a family, what we're seeing is that the, at, the, at about the same rate, there's a decreasing uh, likelihood that those people will get married. And so at the same time, what we're seeing is we're seeing more and more, again, particularly Black women going into college. And so given that a lot of that goods producing and manufacturing work is going away and is not coming back, at the same time, we're seeing more and more women, particularly Black women, going to school, what we're going to see is a widening of the gap from an educational and income standpoint Of large numbers of Black women and Black men. Now, from a cultural standpoint, it is also true and has has always been true that both men and women, um, many of them, not all, but many of them desire a relationship in which the man uh, is educationally superior and earns more, right? People tend to see that as more natural, right? And what we're finding is that as that happens in fewer and fewer cases, people with what to do with that, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Men tend to be challenged from the standpoint that it questions for many of them, it calls into question their ability to fulfill this provider role that many men have internalized and feel is so important to them because the world around them tells them that if you are a man, your first and primary job is to be a provider, right? So what does that mean for men who don't make a lot of money, right? Um, even more so, what does that mean for men whose wives or girlfriends earn more than them? For many men, what that signals to them is that they are less of a man, right? Now, again, you know, these these are not my words, but these are some of the things that we see mirrored and reflected in the broader society because of the way in which we tend to sort of have rigid divisions of labor along gender lines where we subscribe or ascribe financial provision to men and we uh, sort of ascribe domestic labor to women. But again, what we're seeing is that in the last 25 to 30 years, we're seeing a flipping of those roles. And we're also seeing that have um, some implications and some consequences for our relationships and our uh, marital rates and things of that nature. Now. What, what needs to happen there? I think we necessarily, particularly Black people, right? Because the idea that men as earners or providers and women as uh, sort of nurturers and caregivers and being relegated to domestic labor uh, and having a rigid division along those lines, I, I've never thought that, and I, I don't think there's any data to support that that has been a model that has ever worked for Black people. Mm-hmm. Right, so even even historically, right, uh, even when we think about the 1950s and the 60s with the women's, um, we know that black women have always been involved in paid labor outside of the home, right, necessarily because uh, Uh, discrimination, oppression, namely Jim Crow, has made it necessary, right? So in order for Black families to survive, they've always needed multiple incomes, whether it be man or woman or whatever the case may be. So this idea that you can take a family and have a sole provider and a sole nurse and a caregiver, that has never been the reality for most Black people. Except for the fact that because the broader society superimposes that onto us, many of us absorb that as if it is indeed the case or should be the case for us. And it causes us problems in situations like the one that you're describing where you have a woman who may be earning more money than a man does, because that man, if he is um, listening to or absorbing the broader society's definition of what it means to be a man, that challenges his manhood, right? Um, It ought not, it should not, right? Because you can necessarily be a contributing member or, A contributing sort of a party to your relationship, no matter how much money you either do or don't have. And if men and women bought into that and really and truly believed it, this issue would go away, right? Mm -hmm. The issue is um, historically and traditionally, that's not the way, that's not been the way things have been for us. And although some of that is changing, we've not yet gotten to a place where that has completely changed. So I think until people start to adopt more egalitarian attitudes around, what money and finances and formal education means for that relationship and being okay with that um, and being okay with being in a relationship that other people would call Mm non-traditional until we get to be okay with that. I think we're going to experience a lot more challenges because of what we're seeing demographically with more women going to college and graduating from college at the same time when goods producing and manufacturing work that doesn't require a lot of formal education is going away. Uh, And so, we're going to be challenged in the next couple of decades until people have sort of a different frame of mind, a different mindset around the role of money and finances in relationship and who has to earn it and what does that mean for them in terms of these sort of traditional thoughts around masculinity and femininity.
0: And doesn't that also have a lot to do with communication? Because this is something else we've talked about the education, we talked about the uh finances in a relationship, um, but. What I find is that, of uh, some men, I can't say a lot of men, but talking to some of my friends, they've experienced the same thing. Have difficulties in communicating their feelings, or mm-hmm. there's an issue communicating about the issue, uh, on how to resolve it. Uh, so, yeah, absolutely. What are your thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, I, I think a, a, a big issue for, as you mentioned, large numbers of men. So keep, keep in mind that the, the men of today are the boys of yesterday, right? And, and think about how often it is we tell boys that big boys don't do what, right? Big boys don't cry, right? right? Um, think about how often it is we've been around young boys and we've heard people tell them To toughen up or to man up, right? And so essentially what's happening is those are raised and socialized and nurtured to mask or uh, dismiss or diminish their thoughts, feelings, and emotions. They've been raised and socialized essentially to put on a facade, right? To show the world some sort of rough, tough exterior uh, without regard to what's actually happening on the inside. Now, The challenge and the problem there is that as those boys turn into men, uh, that same society that has raised them to do exactly that, at some point in time, society expects them to flip a switch and then become these sort of emotionally mature, emotionally intelligent, um, in touch with their feelings, and evolved men. And people don't work like that, right? Um, and so that is indeed, certainly that is a, that is a problem um, because we, we know that the, the psychology of many men, again, I'm trying to be careful not to, to pull out the broad brush and say all men because certainly we know better than to say all men, but many men have difficulty expressing their feelings because to do so suggests a vulnerability that uh, many men have been raised, nurtured, and socialized to believe is a bad thing, right? Right. Uh, Because the idea of vulnerability is uh, what it means to be a man, right? Men aren't vulnerable, right? Uh, Men don't show weakness. And again, if we can go back to the previous conversation, men who do not provide for their families are not men. Men who express their emotions and express vulnerability are seen as weak. And so these are things that we do not do as men, right? Except for, again, as you mentioned, you put that person in a relationship and necessarily the relationship has to be built trust and honesty and communication. But these are people who necessarily have not been trained or have not been provided with the tools to be able to get those types of jobs done, right? Um, And so it's also interesting, if I can speak specifically about uh, what happens oftentimes, all too often, I think in the black community is we also place a premium on strength right? Mm -hmm. You hear people talking about a strong Black man or a strong Black woman. And oftentimes when people, when they're talking about strength, what they're really talking about is how much suffering can you endure without showing it to the rest of the world, Mm. right? Whether, Whether you realize it or acknowledge it or not, when people say strength all too often, that's what they really mean. What they really mean is we know you're suffering, we know you're struggling, but don't expose that to the rest of the world, just keep plugging away, right? So to be able to do that is some sort of a demonstration of exhibition of strength. And we buy into that. And what we also believe is that implicit in the idea that if you can sort of ward off your suffering or your pain, if that means strength, to expose that to the rest of the world necessarily means weakness, right? And... And again, we we don't want to do that. And particularly the the, the male of, of, of the species, we, we don't want to do that because, again, that calls into question whether or not we are men. And both men and women believe that. And so the last thing that men want to do, again, if I'm speaking stereotypically, the last thing they want to do is expose any vulnerability to to women. Um, and when we talk about this in class, I tell my students, to say, if you don't believe this, just go Just go to your local bar and watch how quickly a fight breaks out if you hear someone refer to a man by a five-letter word that's a reference to the female anatomy, right? And you'll see him go from zero to 100 real quick because, again, what he'll end up doing is he'll have to perform and show off for every single person in the bar or in the space because he has to make sure that those people don't walk away thinking that he is anyway connected to or can be compared to or connected to or affiliated with anything that is feminine, right? right. yeah. Um, and so it's interesting how easy it is to control um, many of us simply by bossing us in using words that have to do with anything that can be connected to or has a connotation of being female because that necessarily automatically means weakness, and that's something that is um unacceptable for many men and again it plays itself out even in the context of our relationships from a communication standpoint because it becomes really really difficult for men to do that because they've not had large amounts of practice Mm
0: -hmm.
1: right Um, you get together with a stereotypical group of men and they'll discuss things like the weather they'll discuss sports they may even talk politics right but but having again in a stereotypical group of men there won't be these sort of large and deep discussions about the innermost feelings, right? They'll oftentimes get weirded out by those types of things. Um, and so when, when I think about the way in which men tend to be socialized and juxtapose that against how it is that women are oftentimes socialized, it's, it's um, not only is it normalized, but it's routine and regular for women to get together and sort of share their thoughts and feelings with each other so they have an opportunity to purge Right. Um, you may remember there was a song in the in the '80s, and it was I forget the the artist so there was a group, but it, but it talked about there, there being a meeting in the ladies' room. Right? I don't know if you remember that or not. There was a, I don't. <laughs> There's a song called "There's a Meeting in the Ladies' Room," and then the second half of the hook was "I'll be back real soon." So anyway, so the idea was uh, groups of women would they they would go to the bathroom together, and so like when they went oh, to the bathroom, room. they would. Right, and so when they were going into the bathroom, they were they were having a meeting in the ladies' room. So they weren't necessarily going to the bathroom to to, to relieve themselves more 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 often. What they were doing was they were going to have discussion and conversation about whatever was important to them. Right. So anyway, so it sort of speaks to as an example of how normal it is for women to get together and share what what's going on with them and um, and think about how weird and awkward it would be. If, if I say there was a song called, there's a meeting in the men's room, right? Like, like, like people are like, wait, what's going on there. Right. Sort of, um, as a matter of fact, is, is, uh, and again, I'm, I'm speaking stereotypically here, but it's, it's unwritten sort of man code that there is no talking in the bathroom, right? Like there's no, there's no, no talking in the bathroom. Like what, what are you doing? Are you in there, you take care of your business and you get out of there. Right. So, uh, again, we're having some fun with it. But again, I think that, it speaks to some real issues that are bigger and broader than what they may seem and they have implications, uh, many of them negative for our relationships because, again, um, in order for any relationship to survive, there has to be authentic communication. There has to be vulnerability. That's what builds and grounds the relationship. But if we have folks who have not had practice at doing that or aren't accustomed to doing that or don't feel safe and comfortable enough with their own partners to do that or to be that, certainly espels uh, trouble and maybe even doom for the relationship. Mm.
0: And you know, that leads uh, into another area as for the mental health with uh, black men. Do mm. not want to discuss that, withhold whatever's going on within. And it's like, I'm not depressed. I don't need to talk to anyone. And that again, causes issues in relationships because you don't know what the person is going through. And that goes back to your thing, being vulnerable. They don't want to be vulnerable. You know, They have to be that strong person. And I can't Mm -hmm. let the world know that I'm feeling this way because they're going to feel that I am weak and I'm not a weak man, but I'm hurting. So how does a woman help her man when he's hurting and she knows that he's hurting? Uh, there, is there was there any discussion with your uh, research on how the woman could support the man
1: um, again separate from the book but more sort of gen- generally in in my work as a as a professor um, we know that um, 25 to 33% of the adult population is negatively impacted by mental illness, right? And so for every three adults walking around in the United States, one of them is suffering from some form of mental illness or another. And so what that means is that these, these issues are a lot more pervasive than we realize, right? Now, we've stigmatized mental illness uh, so much in this country that it makes people reluctant to seek help. It's also the case that um, Black people have a history of being mistreated by uh, the mental health system, which makes them even more reluctant, right? And so put those two things together, and we talk about issues with what we call service underutilization, right? Just the idea that uh, there may be help and assistance out there for people, but people are reluctant to seek it out because, again, some combination of the stigma um, or knowing about the history of being not treated very well by providers. In addition to that, um, just like you mentioned, these, these notions around weakness, because again, mental illness is oftentimes associated with weakness, right? You, and you can, you can even hear people talk about this idea of when they know that something's not right, when they aren't just feeling themselves, you can even hear people talking about, well, I'm just gonna push through, right? Uh, And the idea of pushing through suggests that this is a thing that they themselves on their own, they can conquer and overcome. Mm -hmm. But if if you think of, take a step back and think about how, how ludicrous of a statement that is, right? So imagine the absurdity of a person falling and breaking their leg, but refusing to go to the doctor and saying, well, I'm just going to push through. (laughs) Yes. Well, actually you aren't going to just push through, right? Like your leg is broken. Right. And and no one who has that person's best intentions at heart would uh, sign off on them attempting to push through that broken leg. And I think similarly, when we recognize that the people that we know and love may be suffering from uh, some mental health challenges, I think it's incumbent upon all of us to, if nothing else, encourage and support the people that we know, love and care about uh, to seek out help um, from a mental health standpoint as well now. As you mentioned, when we get into sort of some of the the nuances of romantic relationships, these can be really, really delicate conversations. Um, I think it's important for us to be able to provide that encouragement and that support, but doing so in a way that doesn't again stigmatize and does not demean or diminish, because we know that these notions around masculinity are things that many men hold in really, really high regard. I think that that creates a space for us to have what I think are some really, really careful discussions, right? The other thing I think is important is, I think it's important for us to not finger point and blame. Right, so another easy for us to get into a situation where we know someone may be suffering with something and it comes out as a part of an argument Mm-hmm. Well, well, the reason why we aren't getting along is because you're doing this or you're doing that. You Well, so now you're putting the person on the defensive and they're much less likely to be able to hear or receive whatever it is that you're trying to say. Right. And so um, that combined with, again, what I think has to be a really, really delicate discussion or conversation. Well, let me step back. It, it doesn't have to be. I think it's more likely to get a positive outcome if it is a delicate conversation, because again if we think about the stereotypical psychology of men they're a lot like ceramic tiles or porcelain plates like if you knock on them they're hard and tough and rough but if you drop one on the floor the thing may shatter into a thousand pieces right um and so i think that uh given uh, how sensitive these topics are for a lot of people not just men but particularly men particularly black men i would imagine um i think that if i were a person who Find myself in a situation where I had concerns about my partner's mental health status. Um, I would try to bring the discussion up at a place and time when we weren't involved in an argument, right? So as to re- decrease the chances that the person is going to be receiving that defensively um, and decrease the chance that they will hear that as an attack on them. Um, I think I would also try to be as encouraging and supportive as possible Uh, maybe even offering to attend a session or two with the person, right? Just to sort of show them how much of a support you're willing to be if and when that's something that they um, were receptive to. I think those would be some of the things. I think it's also, we live in a day and time now where um, the other online resources, um, I'm, I'm most familiar with the the NA- NAMI is what it's called, the National Alliance Against Mental Illness, and, um, and they have resources online. Um, they also have lists of practitioners who are culturally competent. So if folks wanted uh, a therapist or a practitioner who had, they had reason to believe would be more understanding and empathetic to the issues that may face Black people, right? NAMI has lists of practitioners who have that type of cultural competence or may indeed be African-American or black, whatever the case may be. Mm-hmm. And we're also seeing a lot of other online resources popping up, there's this uh, talk space and there's, um, we're doing more around telehealth. Um, and so I think I'm, I'm encouraged by some of those things because I think what it means is that there's more access to uh, mental health resources if we can only just get beyond the stigma, right? And, and get people connected in some ways but again that's a really really difficult thing to do because it's oftentimes the case that when we have these discussions and even as I mentioned we have a chapter in the book that deals with trauma right Um, and so we know that there are large numbers of men out there wrestling with unresolved issues and and how it is that we can number one get them to a place in a space where they're willing to acknowledge those issues but then link them or connect them or bridge them to practitioners and clinicians who can help them begin to address and resolve some of those issues is really, really important, but not at all easy to do because of the history of the way in which folks have been treated and mistreated within the system combined with the large amounts of stigma that may be surrounding mental illness. So I think this is a broader discussion for our larger society around how it is that we bring mental health into the mainstream of medicine. We have to we have to be able to do that. Um, and until we do, we're going to continue to face challenges. But again, I'm encouraged by what I'm seeing in terms of new and additional resources out there for people. It also seems that the current generation, Generation Z, if you will, seems to be more willing to discuss and talk about what's happening on the inside than um, than in days gone by, right? So, um, so I'm, I'm encouraged by that. Hopefully that continues, we'll, we'll see what happens though.
0: Yeah, and I'm also uh, excited about seeing so many uh, Programs coming up online, online resources for individuals. Uh, I remember uh, I was trying to get some assistance for my son, and it was hard, you know, because everyone was booked.
1: Mm-hmm. You know,
0: so now it's opened up a lot, and and I think our black men uh, need to be more open to seeking help uh, mm-hmm. because sometimes your mate cannot give you. That you really need. Yeah.
1: Absolutely. You need to
0: talk to somebody else. I'm not a, a doctor, a psychiatrist, or a psychologist. So mm-hmm. I can't help you. You know, so I'm hoping, like you said, the generation Z is a lot more open than uh, I'm older men my age or, or maybe a little younger, a little older.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: No, I'm not crazy. And that's what they called it, crazy. Yeah, And that's the stigma to them mm-hmm. that 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 stuck with them. If you go try to get help, you're crazy.
1: Yeah,
0: and and that's what they don't want anyone to. Oh, look at him, he's crazy. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
1: well, as you mentioned, there's a lot of stigma there, um, and and hopefully some of that will get turned around. I, again, I think we're headed in the right direction, but but again, it's a it's a it's a it's a large uphill battle that we're facing. Even even with the psychotropic medication, um, we know that the medication reduces symptoms for in many cases, between 70 to 90% of, of patients. But again, the, the issues around access, and then for many people, a willingness to, to accept the reality that they, they need the medication,
0: yeah.
1: right? Uh, because again, that speaks to some of these issues around what people feel like maybe dependency. And, and again, all of those things get right back to this concern around the perception of weakness, Right.
0: Right. Um, yes.
1: And so again, as, as we in our own circles of influence, as we can sort of normalize um, having mental health challenges, uh, but also normalize seeking out assistance and seeking out uh, treatment from trained professionals, I think we'll we'll be in a much better position to to move beyond some of these issues. Um, but until that happens, we're we going to continue to be challenged. I think.
0: Okay. So we're coming pretty close to the end of this segment of uh, Flames and Torch. So a question for you. Uh, Have you given any thought about uh, maybe writing part two? Your research will be done with the women, so we can just tell you how we feel about (laughs) Black love.
1: Right. Yeah. You know. Idea, so. So to answer your question directly, yes, I, I've given a, quite a bit of thought to that, and I think that necessarily, based on the response that I've gotten, at, even at an early point to, to the original, um, I think it's almost mandatory or required. Right. Like there has to be there has to be an accompaniment. Right. How is it that uh, black women? Um, feel about these issues, right? What are some of their experiences of men and how is it that their relationships ebb and flow over time? And what are the circumstances and situations that shape them? Um, I think that, yeah, that's, that's absolutely on the, on the horizon. Um, I think that that will be a really, really interesting study. One of the things that I was surprised by when, when I sat down with these men was just how open they were Okay. sharing with a complete stranger, right? So keep in mind, like these were not men that I had any real relationship with, right? Now we developed relationships over time, right? But, but even then, at best, it was sort of researcher a and research participant, right? Like we, we didn't get to when we were friends per se or anything along those lines, um, there necessarily have to be some separation. Uh, So I was surprised because, again, stereotypically, I was concerned about whether or not men were going to be willing to open up to me because when I thought about it, um, had I asked myself some of the questions I was asking these men, I don't know how willing I would have been to share with them as openly and as candidly as they did. So I was pleasantly surprised with how open and receptive the guys were to the project. I think what that signals to me was that Uh, these are things that men have on their mind they want to share about they've Mm -hmm. just not been given permission or no one has created a space for them to do it okay and so i wonder about because again stereotypically i think women tend to be more open Mm -hmm. um and so i'm curious and And we talk a lot yeah 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 and (laughs) I'm, i'm eager i'm eager to hear uh what it is that women have to say about these issues because I won't be going into it with some sort of preconceived notion that they're going to be closed off and not willing to share, right? So, um, yeah, so that's absolutely on the horizon. Uh, stay on. Or maybe
0: we'll do a show,
1: yeah. and
0: we'll we'll help you out with your research. We we'll just bring invite some women, you yeah. ask the questions, and and Sign we'll help out.
1: <laughs> Sign me up. Yeah, I'm I'm here <laughs> for it. As as the young people say, I'm here for that. Okay. Yeah,
0: absolutely. So. Well, thank you so much for uh, joining us on Flames and Torch. Uh, Congratulations on your book. Uh, I'm going to be posting where everyone can purchase your book.
1: Okay.
0: Uh, So I have the information. And again, I just can't say how much I appreciate you joining me on my first podcast. And what's a great subject and we're going to have to follow up with another because I'm sure this is not going to be the last time we want to hear about love in a Black community. Black yeah. love matters. Yeah. So again, um, if you joined us, thank you to all of my guests. Uh, I'm Shirley Jen Wright. I am the host of Flames and Torch. And Dr. Amon Perry has been my host, my guest today. And again, Amon, thank you very much. If there's anything that you would like to say, to my audience, I'd
1: appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. Again, I, I consider it an honor to be the first guest. I really appreciate that. I appreciate you sharing your platform with me to talk about what I feel like is a really, really important topic and also to shine a light on, on the new book. As you mentioned, it's available at Roman and Littlefield. Um, and for folks who are interested, if you uh, enter the, the discount code Lex, that's L-E-X 30 off AU. AUTH20 at checkout. Once again, that's lex 30 auth 20 at checkout. Uh, Roman Littlefield has been generous enough to offer a 30% discount. So for folks who are interested in picking the book up, uh, please do so and uh, feel free to engage me in a discussion or conversation after you had an opportunity to pick it up and read. I'm glad to I'd be glad to talk with you about it and keep the conversation going and again. Hopefully sometime in the not too distant future, we can do a follow-up.
0: Yes, I would love to have maybe a um after people have purchased the book, like have a book club discussion. There you go. About the book. That would work very great. Definitely. Okay. Well, thank you very much, uh Amon. And we are going to end this session.
1: All right. Well, thanks again. I appreciate you having me.